0: From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. He gave his kidney to a stranger and set off a chain reaction.
1: My kidney went to someone in Seattle. A family member of that recipient was not a match, but they pledged to give a kidney to someone else's family in
0: need. Matt Kavanaugh, an Army officer in Manitou Springs, says a brush with death in Iraq made him want to be a donor. So he rang up the transplant center at Walter Reed, the military hospital.
1: This still isn't normal. So when I called, I mean, this isn't something that a call that they normally get. And they said, you know what, we'll have to call you back, buddy. And thankfully, a little over a week later, my my transplant nurse called and started me in the process.
0: And later, edible art as the Denver Art Museum reopens its north building.
2: This is Alan from Golden. CPR is just so worthy that I felt really good about giving up my car to them. I donated my battered SUV and CPR was able to receive more than three times what I would have gotten for it if I had just traded it in.
3: Learn how to make your own impact with the vehicle donation on the support page at CPR.org.
0: This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. The call came in and they weren't really sure how to deal with it. A man was on the phone offering to donate his kidney to a stranger. The transplant center said they'd get back with him. The caller was Matt Cavanaugh of Manitou Springs, Army Lieutenant Colonel and Senior Fellow at West Point. Cavanaugh was indeed able to become an altruistic donor, more formally known as a non-directed donor. He just wrote an op-ed about it in the LA Times, encouraging others to follow in his footsteps. Matt, thank you for being with us.
1: Excited to be here, Ryan. I'm a huge fan.
0: Oh, that's kind of you to say. I understand an experience on the battlefield in Iraq in 2003 motivated you to call the transplant center at Walter Reed National Military Medical Center Uh, Tell us about that battlefield experience and how it connected to this notion of becoming a non-directed donor.
1: So it was the summer of 2003, and I was pulling guard to defend my cavalry units position just west of Baghdad. And it was at night, pitch black. And as Murphy's Law strikes, we were at a shift change, and I was by myself on the defensive position. And that's when the insurgent attack came. And although I I tried to preserve my rate of fire such that I wouldn't run out of ammo, I heard that click where I fired every round and that was it. And it was this horrible, awful feeling. And not long after, thankfully, because I really didn't know what would come next, the cavalry arrived. Literally, I was in a cavalry unit and the quick reaction force arrived and pushed off the attackers and... I think it's that moment, that pit in your stomach, that, that feeling of emptiness that I've done everything I, I can and it's not enough that in part motivated me to donate because I can only imagine that someone who's on that list waiting for a kidney feels that very same emptiness.
0: You know, there's any number of things you can do to pay things forward. When did the thought of a kidney occur to you?
1: So I don't know if there's a big bang moment, but it was probably a little over a decade ago. And I I mark it there because when my wife and I met, uh, I mentioned it to her and, you know, we kind of put it on the shelf, you know, (laughs) well over a decade passed, And we have a seven year old and now we have a 10 year old. And I don't know what inspired me to make the call, like you mentioned, But in February, I made the call to Walter Reed, to the transplant department, and that's the cold call that started all of this a little over six months ago.
0: And you were met with a bit of puzzlement, I guess.
1: That's right. This still isn't normal. 25 years ago, nobody did this. I mean, nobody. The United Network for Organ Sharing keeps records, and there's zero in 1997. And since then, there's been 3,400 folks that have done it, about 300-some last year. So when I called, I mean, this isn't something that a call that they normally get. And they said, you know what, we'll have to call you back, buddy. And thankfully, a little over a week later, my my transplant nurse called transplant coordinating nurse and started me in the process.
0: Did they question your mental health?
1: Oh, they sh- <laughs> well, not they, but but the psychologists, you know, they set me up with a psychologist and a social worker.
0: There's a screening and,
1: and a screening. That's right. It's a screening. That's right. They want to make sure that the person, the, the donor candidate is not only physically sound, but mentally sound as well. And the fact that I have a family makes things a little bit different. And it makes, made the decision personally for me a lot harder.
0: Because of the risk of complications or
1: what? Risk of complications and risk of death. Okay. The risk of death for someone like me is one in 10,000. That's about the same risk that you take when you go canoeing. Um, we chose not to tell the kids. It just was a business trip Dad was going on. Oh wow, And we didn't tell them until I was in the clear. But when I went through that process with the psychologist, one of the social workers I talked to told me something that just lit me up and said that in twenty five years of having these conversations with prospective kidney donors, he said that I was the one that had the most fully formed thought about why I would donate and what the risks were and what the complications were. And that's part of why I'm talking to you right now, because I feel like this is something that can help so many people, you know, with relatively little risk to the donor.
0: I wonder what sorts of questions you were asked in the psychological screening.
1: Uh, Why are you doing this? (laughs) I mean, they start at 10,000 feet and then they sort of drill down, you know, is anyone paying you for this? Are you being coerced in any way? Uh, in the process, I learned that if I had uh, made a trip to uh, India or Saudi Arabia, I could have made 100000 bucks for selling the kidney. And so there are a whole basket of ethical questions surrounding the donation of a kidney. When you give to a family member, it's pretty straightforward. But when you give to someone that you've never met or will never know, and I, I've never connected with my recipient... And I I probably won't. There's a lot of questions that people want to know about that.
0: (laughs) You say that you have not met the recipient and that you probably won't. What makes you say you probably won't? Is that that's just not the nature of the system?
1: Yeah. I mean, it's funny. I chose to donate in this way in part because I wanted it to go to someone who needed. And to me, it doesn't matter who that person is doesn't matter what religion, what political preference, what gender preference, what, you know, whatever, whoever this person is, they need this. It's someone who's suffering and it's good to knock down the suffering list by one. But I recognize also that because I don't know this person before the delivery of the kidney, it's that recipient's decision whether or not to reach out. Okay. they They, and, they would
0: have that option though.
1: That's right. As I understand it, there are instances where a donor and a recipient have kind of an awkward relationship. And the truth of the matter is, I'm just glad to know that the day after surgery, I was discharged from the hospital, and so was the recipient. Like to me, that meant the world, like knowing, you know, knowing that that person was off dialysis, was living a more normal life. And so I I wish them all the best. Uh, On average, a recipient has 10 years with that kidney. I read about somebody who had gone 40 years on a donated kidney. and One fun fact is that when they, when they get a kidney, they actually don't remove the two that are already there. There's actually a guy in the Netherlands who has seven kidneys in his body moving around. As long as there's space, as I understand it, the transplant surgeons just prefer to leave it there
0: a kidney, you know, I, I think of kidney beans and the, which are quite small, but kidneys are sizable. I'm guessing that you weighed less after the donation.
1: That's right. This was just a ploy for getting off those pesky extra pounds. <laughs> so, and jury duty. I actually had jury duty scheduled, and I had to. I had to tell them, "Sorry, guys, I need to punt on that for just a little while." It's about the size of a fist you know, in that tiny fist is a whole lot of importance. That's, that's your body's filtration system. You know, it really, really matters. And when they fail, they tend to fail in pairs. So keeping sort of a spare isn't really usually a terribly great strategy. So my surgery was robotic. And it's amazing in the sense that in ye olden days, they would open you up, They cut you wide open and they moved stuff around and that meant that the recovery was horrible. For me, they made four small holes in the left side of my abdomen abdomen, one for a camera, three for tools. And then there's roughly a pointer finger sized scar just below the navel where they kind of turn the kidney sideways and then they remove it. Uh, There's a transplant surgeon operating the robotic joystick. And then there's a transplant surgeon who actually just kind of nudges the kidney out as I understand it, and then packs it on ice and then moves it on. That's how I was able to be discharged the day after. Hmm. That's how I started walking the day after. And by day 27, I was jogging again, albeit very slowly.
0: So the timing is that your surgery would be scheduled when your recipient's surgery was scheduled. Where did your surgery take place, and does that have to be in proximity to the recipient, or did your kidney no. did your kidney get like a an airplane seat?
1: yeah, first class you know champagne everything. <laughs> so so my surgery had to be done. I had to be in the o r by like three in the morning at Walter Reed National Military Medical Center in Bethesda, Maryland, just outside of d c because it had to make an eight a m flight to Seattle and the Seattle metro area where it was implanted in the recipient. So that brings up a excellent point. There are a whole lot of family members that are mismatched. It's a very common problem. So there's a nonprofit called the National Kidney Registry who sets up using math and logistics frankly probably not all that dissimilar from what Amazon and UPS does so that my kidney went to someone in Seattle a family member of that recipient was not a match, but they pledged to give a kidney to someone else's family in need and so on and so forth. And that chain eventually at the end of this month, that chain landed on Walter Reed. So an active duty soldier or Marine will get a kidney as well. My chain went seven folks. So seven additional people that were mismatched were catalyzed into being able to give and receive kidneys by virtue of my donation. Hmm. So that's what makes altruistic chain kidney donation so powerful because it's not just one. You can kickstart a chain of others that give and it keeps on going. I mean, it's fantastic in a lot of ways.
0: Because presumably the family members around someone who needs a kidney have been screened, have expressed then an interest in donation, may not be able to give to their loved one, but then commit to giving it to someone. Do I have that right?
1: That's exactly right. And, you know, to give you a sense of the size of the problem here, just some numbers, 37 million Americans suffer from some form of kidney disease. Most of them don't even know it. There's 100,000 people waiting on a list right now to receive a kidney, 1,000 of which are kids. 5,000 folks on that list this last year died while waiting for a kidney. So these numbers are daunting, but this is not impossible. This is not intractable. This is something that someone who's listening right now could do to save a life. And the medical professionals are gonna make sure that if you're interested in doing this, that you're clear to do it.
0: Yeah, so I reached out, I shared your piece in the Los Angeles Times with DonateLifeColorado.org. You know, this is the institution behind volunteering when you die to have your organs live on. They don't deal with what's called live donation, and they suggest if you're interested in this, that you reach out to one of the transplant centers in Colorado. So that's going to be Centura. Presbyterian St. Luke's Children's Hospital of Colorado and the University of Colorado Hospital. And then it's at those institutions discretion whether to move forward. So do I hear you saying people of sound body and mind should donate a kidney? Is that your plea, Matt Cavanaugh?
1: maybe not everybody life circumstances are of course different for so many people. And there's a right? privilege
0: so, to being able to take off work to do this. You know,
1: you are, you are darn right. I happen to work for a, an employer that supports by policy kidney donation. So there are some boxes that need to be checked and to be perfectly blunt. Like I mentioned, if you have a family that makes this decision all the more difficult, but in the process of thinking through this, um, I talked to other people that have done it. I talked to a fellow West Point graduate named Dave Ashley, uh, who donated. And when I t- when I reached out to him and said, "Tell me about your experience," he said, "I'll have to get back to you. I'm in the middle of climbing the seven summits." There's this misconception that after kidney donation, life is much more difficult. Um, There are some adjustments to life, but really you can go out and do a lot. I'm back to running and jogging. Everyone you talk to people about this, they say, my only regret is that I just had one kidney to give. But if I were to make an elevator pitch, it's that 14 people are going to die today needlessly unless someone does something that's absolutely doable. Doable.
0: Live organ donation was in the spotlight recently with a widely discussed piece in the New York Times Magazine. Today, a Colorado man's story of altruistic donation, which he just shared in the LA Times. Army officer Matt Kavanaugh of Manitou Springs gave one of his kidneys to a stranger and harnessed the power of a donor chain to get others to follow suit. Earlier this year, the lieutenant colonel cold-called Walter Reed Medical Center in Maryland. They took down the request and eventually took him up on his offer. Did this cost you anything? And I guess I mean financially in terms of the procedure itself?
1: No. And again, like I mentioned, my employer is very generous. The U.S. Army and the Department of Defense are very generous in allowing you time to do this not just for the the space flight level couple of days physical that it takes to ensure that you're physically prepared to go through the donation, but also the actual surgery itself and then the recovery. As I understand it, dialysis is incredibly expensive. Every person getting dialysis on average, when they receive a transplanted kidney, it saves a million dollars. So insurance companies as I understand it, are more than willing to foot the bill for a donor, particularly an altruistic donor, to go through the process because this is not just good for the recipient, but it's also good for the bottom line.
0: What was the length of time between when you cold called Walter Reed and when your kidney was removed?
1: It was about six months.
0: Do you miss your kidney?
1: No, I will say that one of the, you know, one of those things about adjusting to life after kidney donation is that your body's filtration system is working harder than it's ever worked before. And it takes a little bit of time to adjust to that. And so as I understand it, you know, it's different for everybody, but a lot of people report, you know, saying it's that at about eight o'clock at night, they feel really tired and they need to hit the hay. I've experienced a little bit of that, but I don't notice it one bit. I mean, I've got these scars. And they took pictures of my kidney after it was removed. But the day that I went in for surgery, I had a last glass of red wine to kind of bon voyage my kidney. and uh, <laughs> you, to toasted, share you toasted your kidney. Okay. I toasted my recipient too. I said, hey man, we got to share one for the road. And then the day after, I was back to drinking red wine again. I mean, it like uh, my life really... Other than adjusting to the abdominal recovery, you know, where they cut through my abdominal wall, which is going really, really well. No, I I don't miss it. And I wish it all the best. I hope that it does as well for me as it and for someone else.
0: Okay. Um, um, this is going to sound like a really rude question, Matt, but do you think any part of you did this for attention?
1: No. I'll tell you why. I, I'll tell you why I know that. Um
0: and, and I say this as someone who's constantly questioning his own motivations. So please know that I think that absolutely. would be something I would screen my own thinking for, you know.
1: Because the moment that it happened. Th- there's no ticker tape parade. You know, the moment that I got back, my kids hugged me and then uh everything was just as it was before. My life is. Pretty much no different other than the five scars that are on my abdomen. My honest to gosh, only motivation at this point is telling this story publicly in such a way that encourages other people that had never considered this to think about it as a possibility. You know, I, like I said, I, (laughs) I could have made a hundred grand in Saudi Arabia, um, but one benefit The biggest benefit probably is that I'm a lot, it's a wake up call. The scars opened up a hole to take something out of me, but they also put something back in, which is that it's a reminder that some people have it off a heck of a lot worse. And I should be very, very grateful for everything that I have, particularly my physical health and my family, the stuff that matters most. Um, And that's threatened for a lot of other people. And I want to, Help those people to have the same.
0: So you had not told your kids prior to the procedure that this was happening, and then I assume you broke the news to them upon your return. And what was their reaction? (laughs) (laughs)
1: Uh, When are we gonna? You know, let's go to the park, Dad. Or you know, I mean, it was, it was, it was. uh, they, They left their dishes on the on the couch. They they did all the things that they normally do. It was, um, the only difference was for about a week, they were a little bit more guarded about how they hugged me.
0: What has the response been to the LA Times piece?
1: Uh, From the kidney donation crowd, very positive. There's a group called Kidney Donor Athletes. Um, Those are folks that have donated kidneys and actually they're headquartered out of Denver. They are fantastic. Um, They have a very active Facebook community. And they're active in in mentorship in the sense that when people think about doing this, they need a tiny bit of hand-holding. They need to know that this isn't crazy, that it isn't something that's off the map or off the radar, that it's possible, and that life doesn't really change all that much. And I can raise my hand to that. There's the National Kidney Donor Organization. There's the National Kidney Registry. You know what's funny is that When you aren't exposed to the challenges of kidney failure, you just don't notice it because it it takes place in the dark or beyond your purview. When you are exposed, it's this whole world of suffering and then the groups of people that are trying to alleviate that suffering. And they're doing amazing work. I mean, they, they really are. Whereas there's a whole lot of problems out there in the world that seem impossible to solve. This is a problem that can be solved.
0: Thank you so much for being with us and sharing this story, Matt. I really appreciate it.
1: I really appreciated the time. Thanks for the conversation, Ryan.
0: Army officer Matt Cavanaugh of Manitou Springs gave one of his kidneys to a stranger His op-ed about it in the LA Times is called, The Cavalry Saved Me, and 18 years later, I was the cavalry with a kidney donation. You may also recognize Kavanaugh's name as an essayist for KRCC. He's careful to mention that his views do not reflect any official Defense Department position. Again, the transplant centers in Colorado are Centura, Presbyterian St. Luke's, Children's, and the University of Colorado Hospital. One last thing, Colorado's Donor Alliance underscores that while not everyone can be a living donor like Matt, everyone can sign up to be a donor after death. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC.
4: An informed citizenry is at the heart of a dynamic democracy. Thomas Jefferson wrote those words more than 230 years ago. But it's especially true now as we face three questions on our statewide ballots for 2021. I'm Rachel Estabrook, CPR News Director, and CPR News is here to help you be informed and participate in democracy. Even in an off-election year like this one, we have your back. Come to CPR.org now for the 2021 Voter's Guide.
0: A riddle for you. What's 50 years old, but also brand new? The answer is the north building of the Denver Art Museum, the one covered in more than a million glass tiles designed by architect Gio Ponti. The building is half a century old and reopens to the public this weekend after a major renovation. At a recent press conference, the museum's director of learning, Heather Nielsen, said there are not only overhauled galleries, but a new welcome center and gathering spaces.
5: More than ever, people are asking for places to connect and convene. They're asking to engage in conversation and share stories that are complex and nuanced. Years of working with our partners, and we've heard that spaces that foster creativity in this community are a much-needed resource. We listened and then the new spaces reflect what Denver told us they wanted from a welcoming and accessible art museum.
0: So voters helped pay for this project, passing a bond in 2017. There was also private fundraising. The art museum's director, Christoph Heinrich, explained this idea that a museum should indeed be a gathering place.
4: The new campus has been designed with connection in mind and we hope that new spaces encourage connections outside the museum through spaces like our new community galleries, as well program spaces, and, of course, uh, the dining spaces.
0: The dining spaces, he said there. Indeed, there's a new restaurant called the Ponti, named for the architect. Denver chef Jen Jasinski developed the vegetable forward menu and trained up the staff. Chef Jen's also just won a prestigious award that has previously gone to the likes of Jacques Pepin, Jose Andres, and Emeril Lagasse. And Chef Jen, welcome back to Colorado Matters.
4: Oh, so happy to be here. Thank you.
0: Why don't we start with this award, because it actually relates to the new restaurant. You were just inducted into the Menu Masters Hall of Fame. The honor goes to, quote, pioneers in menu development. And I'm, I'm just curious how you begin filling out a blank menu when you just have like <laughs> any food, any ingredient on earth available, you know?
4: I know. I love it. It's like my palate, you know, and it, it, speaking about the museum and artwork and it's not just art because, you know, you need food to survive, but for me, it is like a palette and I look at food maybe in a different way than other people look at food, but it just starts to speak to me in ways that come into menu items and it's just fun.
0: It's funny you say palette because, of course, I think of uh, the painting palette and then I think of our palettes in our mouths. I actually think that was yes. the
4: restaurant. Yes.
0: That was the former restaurant in the art museum, wasn't it? Called Palettes?
4: Actually, yeah. it totally was. Yes. <laughs> so but, funny.
0: But you're not overwhelmed then by just like the sheer number of possibilities?
4: No, because I, I do think that you do get sure. limited sometimes with seasonality, of course, first mm. and foremost, because I love that. And then also I do think things play well together. Like not everything tastes good together, you know? So if I see some sunchoke in season and I know now at this point in my career, you know, what's going to taste good with it. And then I also like to push the envelope and maybe try some new things. And we've done that quite a bit at the Ponte and Um, I think, really successfully. So um, I was super proud to win that award. I mean, people like you said, like Tom Colicchio, Jose Andres, and of course my mentor Wolfgang Puck won that award. And it was one of those little lifetime achievement things that made me smile.
0: Oh, Uh, I knew at your other restaurants, uh, Rioja, Bistro Vendôme, for instance, sourcing local ingredients is a real priority. So I I suppose that too narrows, right, the palate, if you will.
4: Yes, we get local when we can. You know, Colorado's season, depending on the produce, isn't a super long season. But we have great farmers and ranchers and great local people and uh, cheesemakers too. Boy, fabulous cheese. So wherever we can get local fabulous ingredients, we do and we highlight them. And it's always special to us to be able to do that. I mean, a lot of people, when they come into Colorado, they don't understand how much bounty we have. So I love to show it off.
0: I don't think that if you'd have asked me what colorado is known for in terms of food it creates i would have said cheesemakers do you want to expound on that is that is that a scene that has grown a lot lately or
4: i you know it has and i and i didn't come prepared to have a ton of things but there are (laughs) so many different um especially so goats there's a lot of goat's milk cheese um and i know that lamb is one of our things here too it's not the same but Um, their grasses and the pastures that we have here, they just these animals just love it in Colorado. And so the cheese and the milk coming from these beautiful grasses just tastes delicious. And we have some great artisans who've moved here because it's a beautiful place to live and are just creating beautiful cheese, you know? Uh, Yeah.
0: You've shared a recipe with us. I'll tweet it out a little later Ah, at CPR Warner. This is for a dish that's on the new menu at the Ponty. Mm -hmm. Brussels sprouts two ways. It features dried plums, pickled radishes, and pickled fruits. Uh, describe the flavors for us.
4: So a lot of Japanese flavors actually in this dish. Um, it has, like you said, Brussels sprouts. Some of them are raw, just leaves picked, and some of them are fried leaves picked. So it has some great crunchy, chewy texture, and then this kind of fried, uh, crunchy, subtle texture. And umeboshi is a Japanese plum. It's been fermented and uh, and we make a dressing from this umeboshi. And then we also put in some dried plums and takuan, which is a pickled and fermented daikon radish too. Uh, And then sesame crackers. So it has this kind of fruity, salty, fermented, um, chewy flavor to it, lots of great textures. And these sesame crackers have a little crunch, a touch of brown sugar in it. Um, It's a really beautiful salad that, you know, I love – people love Brussels sprouts, but I do feel as a chef they've been kind of abused. <laughs> and yes, people always do them the same way. It's like a beet salad, you know. And um, I really do love the the product, but I want to highlight it in a different way and show people that we can add this in a different way. So it's a great salad. Um, it may seem a little intimidating when people see that recipe on the website, but it's really not. It's only a few
0: things, so okay. I'll share that recipe once once I'm off air at CPR Warner yeah. on Twitter. And it's funny you you talk about our relationship with brussels sprouts because I think <laughs> decades ago we all came to think of brussels sprouts as having a terrible taste because they were improperly prepared. Then every yes. single restaurant in the world seemed to add them, sort of fla- fresh, flash fried. Easy for me to say. Mm-hmm. And you you want, you want to bring them a little further, huh?
4: Yeah. I mean, there's, they're just, they actually, you can do so much with them and they are delicious raw. That's why a lot of the salad, like two thirds of the salad that I, and the recipe is raw, but they have to be cleaned, right? They have to be separated. The leaves separated individually, Because you can't just eat that little, you know, we used to call it Barbie doll cabbage because, you know, it looks like a Barbie doll cabbage, (laughs) you know. So, and you can't just eat that Barbie doll cabbage whole and raw. It'll be too hard to chew on. But um, like with anything with food, when you know how to coax it into greatness, and that's my job, hopefully, to coax it into greatness, you can really do a lot with a little.
0: You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're speaking with the James Beard Award-winning chef. That's another of her trophies on the shelf, Mm -hmm. Jen Jasinski of Denver, uh, who encourages, by the way, for the recipe we just shared, uh, that you visit as a home cook Asian markets like Pacific Mercantile and H-Mart to get the sorts of ingredients uh, that are featured in that Brussels sprouts two-ways salad. Okay. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about what it is to be a restaurateur in the pandemic, Um, Mm. because while you're helping open this restaurant, the Ponte at the Denver Art Museum, you also closed one. I think it was back in March of 2020, which was Euclid Hall in Larimer Square. In a a press release at the time, you cited the cumulative effects of the virus and the fact that your lease was expiring. Was that a painful chapter, Jen Jasinski?
4: It was, you know, uh, every restaurant that we've built in our little group, we call it crafted concepts is very personal to me and my business partner, Beth. they are our children and, you know, we fought for a long time. Um, but sometimes you just have to give it up. You know, I mean, I, we couldn't let it drag the other restaurants down financially, you know, so, um, very hard. Um, we had such a great crew there. We have there 10 years. So we're there a long, 10 years is a good journey, you know? um a lot of good memories but it was hard um yeah not an easy thing to do a lot of restaurant tours in this pandemic have had struggled but you know we're making it every day
0: what was the hardest part specifically with euclid hall
4: maybe my ego <laughs> oh. you know um that it didn't make it that we couldn't pull it through um that somehow my sheer will of force didn't wasn't enough to make it and uh, that's been something that I feel very lucky. I, I feel like I'm a strong-willed individual. Um, and so I, I feel sometimes like I should be able to solve any problem. But I can't, you know, I can't. So maybe that was it.
0: Do, do I hear your dog in the background?
4: Yes. I do. <laughs> okay.
0: Yes. I thought I heard a leash or a collar. Yes. You know, we yes. know in the pandemic that, that restaurants have faced shortages of staff and of supplies. How have you navigated those challenges?
4: It has been difficult. Um, And, you know, the last six months with the supply chain issues and the prices of commodities going up and skyrocketing, and then also the labor shortage, and we just won't get deliveries some days, um, we have to be agile. So how you work around this is our team has to become more agile. We have to be able to reprint menus on the fly. We have to just be able to tell our guests, you know, gosh, we're substituting this tonight or... Maybe we're out of this or please be patient. <laughs> um, you know, it's hard when when our people that deliver to us don't don't deliver to us. And then we can't have anything delivered to our guests. It is mm. it just all is like a domino effect, you know.
0: And what about um, the staffing side of it? How have you either maintained staff or um, attracted them in the first place?
4: Yeah, you know. Throughout the pandemic, so March, you know, we shut down, but Rio hop stayed open and we did, you know, we cooked for different people in need, uh, 3000 meals uh, a week. And so we kept key staff on. And then I think about a couple months into the pandemic, we decided to reopen the restaurants for to-go food. And so we, we kind of kept key staff members on from the beginning. And, um, we've always been trying to look ahead and keep the key people, the people we love and we cherish and we depend on so much uh, employed. And so that's of course helped us because keeping these key employees who know us and know our culture has been great. And then um, we pay people well in our restaurants. We we share tips with the kitchen and the dishwashers and everybody. So the whole restaurant shares tips. I think, um, I think that attracts people to our restaurants because they get paid an excellent wage. And I think you know. Hopefully, Beth and I were good people to work for, and hopefully, we're not too big of jerks. And uh, <laughs> we do expect we do expect you know perfection, but hopefully, you like us. And um, we've had a lot of people stay with us for many years, and we're very blessed that um, we have a great great crew of people that, that work with us. And I'm very appreciative to those people that work hard every day.
0: This is a reference, I think, to Beth Gruch. Am I pronouncing that yes. properly? Yes. Your, your my business partner. Business yes. partner. Um, I'll never forget, you came on Colorado Matters years ago, around this time of year, and you talked to us about, for Thanksgiving, deboning an entire turkey. So yes, no my matter, turkey autopsy. Yeah, the <laughs> autopsy approach. Uh, plans to do that again this year before we go, real quick?
4: Yeah, maybe. I think so. Uh, I'm going to cook for the family. My my husband's family lives in town, and we'll always do something special with that turkey. always got to brine it. Brining it's the key, if I can give you guys one hint.
0: You heard it here. Chef Chen, thank you so much for being with us. Congratulations on the new menu at The Ponte.
4: Well, thank you so much. Have an awesome day.
0: Jennifer Jasinski, consulting chef at The Ponte, the new restaurant in the Denver Art Museum's renovated Martin Building and Welcome Center. Jasinski, whose Denver eateries also include Stoic and Genuine and Ultrea, was just inducted into the Menu Masters Hall of Fame Again, I'll tweet shortly the recipe for Brussels sprouts two ways at CPR Warner. Here are the voices of students who've created change.
5: Growing up, I never really learned black history and I didn't know what slavery was till
6: I got near fifth grade something that had to be done because Black history is something that we lacked in our curriculum. Black history matters. Latino history matters.
2: Asian history matters. Indigenous history matters.
0: That's from the new documentary Power in Our Voices. It premieres tonight at the Dr. King Early College in Denver, and it follows four students who lobby DPS to incorporate Black history into the curriculum. They even made their own podcast and are on a student advisory board for the textbook Black History 365, which their school, MLK Early College, now uses. Avery Lill spoke with the four earlier this year, Donnie Austin, Alana Mitchell, Janelle Nanga, and Kalia Yazar.
3: I'd love for you each to tell me about your experiences learning American history in school through the years. Alana, will you start? So I never really learned any black history, which is why
7: I'm so adamant on getting it implemented now. Um, I only really learned about slavery and the civil rights movement and then that over and over and over again. But when I was in regular history, I only really learned about dead white men that I didn't really care about. So I would say I never really had a good history education.
6: I know for me, my experience was kind of similar to Alana's. I've gone to a lot of different schools, but I know that in fifth grade was the first time that I was learning like history and well, from what I remember, well, Black history, actually. And I only remember covering slavery during that time. And I just remember being really, really uncomfortable in the classroom. Like every time we would talk about it, because I did go to a predominantly white school and was the only dark-skinned girl in the class. During high school, I learned about the Civil Rights Movement, like Lana said, and different, um, like, really commonly known people in Black history, like MLK, Malcolm X, and Rosa Parks, pretty much. And we learned about the bus boycott, and that was pretty much it.
5: Um, For me personally, I kind of had a similar experience to Janelle. Because I didn't really learn about a little bit about my own history till I reached middle school. That's just when the whole topic of slavery was introduced to me. And it wasn't really even going to depth about slavery, it was just telling you how Black people were the oppressed and just like about the civil rights movement, introducing Martin Luther King, Rosa Parks, Harriet Tubman, and so on. And we would only really speak about that during the month of February, which is Black History Month. And besides that, it was just like Alana said, you just got told of older white men who has created things or just made an impact on the world somehow. And so I wasn't really actually that involved in Black history till this current year when I actually took an African-American history class, which I was kind of confused because it's separated from all the other classes or normal history classes. And I never really, like, it was just a big thing for me. And I was like, well, since it's separated, I guess I'll put this time into trying to go and apply for that class. Kalia, what about your experience?
2: It's pretty similar. And like to know, Um, growing up, I went to a few different schools. So like I was born in Kansas and I really don't remember having a very good just U.S. history education period. So when it came to like Black history, it was just a completely different experience where like, once again, it was mostly slavery and the civil rights movement. And it was mostly taught on a very minuscule level. I don't know if I would say I was necessarily upset about it. I just didn't really understand it. And then coming here to Denver, it was basically the same too.
3: And I hear you each saying something that other students have criticized Denver's curriculum for that when black history is taught that the focus is on oppression and not on strengths and contributions. Would y'all talk more about why that matters and more about that problem?
7: Because when you're only learning bad things about yourself and you're only learning that you were oppressed and you're only learning that you were slaves and that uh, stuff like that, it's really detrimental and Kind of, it makes you feel like you can't really do anything in this world, and it makes you feel like all that you can live up to are those expectations that were placed on you.
3: And you've all been leaders for over a year in this push for Denver Public Schools to diversify its curriculum. And DPS passed a resolution last fall. It's actually named after your podcast. It's No as in Knowledge, Justice, No Peace. And that resolution mandates that Denver schools teach the historical and contemporary contributions of Black, Indigenous, and Latino communities. Alana, you're a senior. How do you think that your time in school would have been different if you'd had a curriculum like this that centers the Black experience and Black history?
7: I feel like if I would have had this, I could have avoided a lot of my identity issues because I grew up and I was always like, okay, people always told me, well, you're too white to be Black and you're too Black to be white. So what are you? Where do you fit in? And I feel like if I would have realized that my black is beautiful, I'm beautiful and I can do whatever I put my mind to, I feel like I would have turned out as a better person earlier and I would have had more opportunities and I would have taken my education more seriously than I had taken it
6: for all of us one goal that we all really have is being able to spark that same experience and excitement that we all have had learning our history on this journey and empowering students to like Donnie said love their skin color embrace their their hair and everything about them and their culture and really bring out the truth Because um, when it comes to our history, the truth is not told, and there's actually a lot of lies and misconceptions that come
2: along with our history.
3: As students, what are your priorities for this curriculum that might
2: be different than priorities that teachers have? I know personally for me, it's way different because as a student, it takes a different level or just a different perception to understand what other students might like compared to teachers, especially because like generational gaps where a lot of times the teacher's who are teaching this Black history have had the same experience that other students have where it's mostly whitewashed and it's mostly slavery or the civil rights movement.
3: And I wonder how
2: teachers,
3: how do you think teachers who aren't Black and specifically white teachers can do a better job teaching Black history? Because you got into this a little bit, Donnie, that a lot of times teachers grew up with misinformation and now they're teaching the same misinformation to their students.
6: I think that teachers and specifically non-teachers of color just need to understand how this will impact students because as a teacher, it really is your job to be able to serve students and empower us, help us learn the correct way and. You know, help us form positive views on the world and how we can impact the world. So it goes way beyond their own biases and they need to learn how to unlearn these biases and understanding that it's more than just race. It's more than just skin color and understanding that this is something that can unify us and be comfortable with being uncomfortable. People of color are oppressed in situations systemically every single day in this country, and we're uncomfortable every single day, but we have to still go on. And it's just important that regardless of how uncomfortable a teacher may be, they're still willing to facilitate these um, important, important conversations with their students in their classrooms.
7: I think that um, teachers need to get rid of their savior complexes because Black students don't need to be saved. They need to be understood, and white teachers need to understand students as well. Um, I feel like if you don't understand and if you don't take the time to talk to your students and actually build that relationship with them, you're not going to be able to successfully teach them in any subject. And I think that it goes with what Janelle was just saying. And I just feel like Students need to be understood and conversations need to be had to make sure that students' well-beings are okay, students are doing okay at home, students are doing okay
6: in general.
3: And this goes back to what you were saying, Donnie, earlier, that there were a lot of things you didn't learn until you took a specific class for African-American history and that it was separated from everything else. What do you say to people who think that Black history is primarily for Black students? Tell me more about why it's important for everyone to learn Black history as a fundamental part of American history.
5: Um,
3: really, that's pretty much a simple
5: answer. It's just basically the fact that American history is Black history and it's just the whole idea is centered around that you have to know Black history in order to really know the truth about how America was built. And that's really all I could say to it, because it's a fact.
3: Tell me for the rest of you about the conversations that you're having with adults in your life about your advocacy work and balancing that on top of your schoolwork and everything else that's going on in a a year that's too crazy to even list the ways that it's been crazy.
2: Um. Like, just the year in general, like before anything else, it's been hectic, and I feel like just one thing that should really be pointed out is that students need support now more than ever. Students have always needed support because high school, middle school, school in general is just hard, but especially right now, students just need support, and I know for me with my family, they definitely supported me with, like, you know, my mom driving me to the school or to our board meetings to um, just talk and being there for us and supporting us and understanding the commitments that come with all of this work. They have definitely helped me a lot with that. Student activists in general, it can be kind of hard to like, you know, keep up with your school life and your social life and then all of your activist work. So it has been a little bit hectic, but I feel like the work we're doing in particular is really important because like, I know all of us here, we have siblings, I have a little sister who's going to my school in sixth grade, and I have a little brother who's probably gonna to go to the school or school around here once he gets older. And the work we're doing is really for not only the kids who are in school right now, but for the future kids who are going to grow up with this Black history. For me personally, the work that I'm doing right now is definitely to just make that experience better for them once they grow up.
0: Avery Lill speaking back in March with Donnie Austin, Alana Mitchell, Janelle Nanga, and Kalia Yizar. A documentary premieres tonight about the students' effort to incorporate Black history into the Denver Public Schools curriculum. The film is called Power in Our Voices, the No Justice, No Peace Story. I'm Ryan Warner, with thanks to our team. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC.